You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, as the kids are making their way, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. I once read that Johann Sebastian Bach had an interesting way of waking up in the morning. That as a habit, his children would wake up first and they would go into, say, the living room and sit down at the piano and they would begin playing lines from a song. Of course, their playing would be uh, error-laden all throughout. And Bach would lay in his bed until they reached the very end of the song and they would leave off the last few notes And then he would get out of his bed and go in and finish the song. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it is a beautiful picture to imagine because of the way that it reflects everything that the book of Revelation tells us about Jesus' final victory. That no matter how bad the music may sound and seem in this world, in this life, now or in the days to come, and we have been reading about a lot of dark hard music coming in the future, he will rise again. He will play the last notes of his song, and he will take all of his people to be with him forever in his ultimate victory. This is a truth that every person here, whether you know it or not, is in desperate need of. You need to know who is the king. You need to know who is the Savior, and you need to know in hard times now or hard times in the future or even looking back at hard times in the past, who reigns supreme in incredible love and mercy and grace over it all, and that person is the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we have been working our way through the book of Revelation in this preaching series, we have been trying to do one thing. For those who are visiting with us this morning or you're new to our church, our main aim in walking verse by verse through the book of Revelation has been to mine truth that will give us present help out of our future hope. We want to be reminded of who Jesus Christ is, who he has been, who he always will be, so that we may walk with him now and through whatever he ordains in our lives and to be able to do it with joy and confidence. That continues to be our goal this morning. We want to think this morning from Revelation chapter 13, yes, again, about the future momentary control of the devil. In hard times that are coming, often referred to as the Great Tribulation, a time of of persecution and difficulty, of judgment upon the world, yes, that in the context of seeing the devil's future control for that time, we have a far greater opportunity, and that is to see the supremacy of Jesus Christ through it all. And so that's our desire this morning as we continue through this next text in Revelation, And just to catch us up, or those who are new uh, with us this morning, what we have seen most recently. Uh, Most recently, we have seen the dragon, who is the devil, to be seen coming upon the scene of history and raising up a kind of trinity, an evil trinity with himself, 
that he raises up two beasts or figures in the world who work together with him to attempt to thwart God's plans in the world. But nevertheless, the scriptures continually show us over and over again that ultimate hope and ultimate help is found in Jesus Christ. And that that ultimate hope and ultimate help is found, in fact, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The central message of the Bible is an announcement of good news about what Jesus Christ has done for sinners like us. The Bible does bring to us as sinners the bad news of the law. It tells us all of the things that God expects of us, all of his commands, all of his righteous expectations. It tells us about his character, a character we are to live up to as his creatures, and yet none of us have done it. We have all broken God's commands. And as a result of breaking those commands, we are all deserving of his eternal wrath upon us because he is a righteous judge over the whole world. But while the bad news of the law may come and crush us and drive us into the ground, the good news of the the gospel comes into our ears and reminds us of just how good God is to sinners like us. That he didn't leave us in condemnation, but rather he has sent his own son to live a perfect life in our place, to die on the cross in our place, and to rise again from the dead so that he could call us to himself and bring us into his compassionate, loving, gracious arms and carry us into eternity with him beyond all sin, beyond all condemnation of the law. We're going to celebrate that in a few minutes by celebrating the Lord's Supper, what symbolizes the work of Jesus Christ. And we have such a wonderful opportunity to pair with that these rich truths that are, that are buried inside the text of Revelation to remind us of who this king is that we worship and serve. But this morning, in an interesting way, we're going to need to do that by noticing the truth about the devil And by looking at the backdrop of what the devil does in these future times, we'll be able to see, I hope, and be refreshed in our hearts, the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his ultimate love and his ultimate grace for his people. We begin with this truth about these future days. In a future time in the great tribulation toward the last three and a half years of that tribulation, the devil will subordinate the worship of people. He will bring people, in fact, the whole world, into his own kind of worship away from the true God, except for those who truly belong to Jesus Christ. We see this because we've been reading about a beast, actually two beasts. We'll see the second one this morning. Last week, we considered one beast as the dragon was standing on the shore. He raised up a figure, likely what appears to be a kind of political figure, which is the first beast. And now we're seeing a second beast that comes along, bringing together that kind of evil trinity that mirrors the true trinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it is the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast. Now, these two beasts are a little bit different. In one key way, the second beast is more of a religious figure or a prophet, like a false prophet who causes the world to worship the first beast which in turn is worship ultimately of the devil himself. Notice what it says in verse 11. John says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. So this is another beast, one coming up out of the sea, one coming up out of the earth, and this one had two horns like a lamb. This could be communicating to us a symbol of limited power. 
It's not the seven or ten horns that we read other places in Scripture, but two horns. Nevertheless, he is strong and in service to the devil himself, who's pictured again in verse 11 as the dragon. Notice the way that the second beast speaks. He speaks as a dragon. We remember the way that the dragon or the devil always speaks. He always speaks in lies. He always speaks in deceptions. He always speaks in blasphemies. So here is this other figure rising up out of the earth and is symbolizing someone who speaks on behalf of the devil. These deceptions, these lies, these blasphemies. We see that it, it seems as though there is an effort among these three together to create a kind of one-world government. Eventually, we'll see a one-world economy and certainly a one-world religion. Coming from this beast who has two horns, limited power, speaking blasphemies like the dragon, mimicking the true God in appearance. And mimicking what we have seen of the true God, both of having horns and also having power, authority and power. Look at verse 13. If you just skip over 12 and notice what he does in verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of the sky to the earth in the presence of people. Again, mimicking real miracles that have happened in Scripture so as to deceive people and to pull them away from the true God, which he will do. In fact, he will also exercise authority. Back to verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. They are working together. He makes the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. You remember that from last week because it seemed that the first beast, this political figure, uh, survived some kind of assassination attempt, perhaps as it seems, even dying and coming to life again. An incredible miracle in the world that would draw the attention of all kinds of people to see him as the one who should be worshipped. But what I want you to see this morning as we think about the second beast is something that is incredibly dangerous and incredibly deceptive and that is the way the second beast wields his authority. In verse 12, it says he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. This, in fact, is the authority temporarily of, that is coming from the devil himself. And this second beast, this political figure, this, this religious icon of sorts, wields his authority to cause worship of the first beast. But remember the way that that first beast gained the approval or admiration of other people. How was it that other people put their hope in him? It wasn't because he was gracious. It wasn't because he was a savior. It wasn't because he was a shepherd of their souls. It was because he was one to be feared. His method of bringing people to worship him is one of fear and intimidation. That's true of this second beast, this counterfeit prophet. Remember from chapter 13, verse 4, just a little earlier, when the people all say together, who is like the first beast? Who is able to wage war with him? His arrogant words, his blasphemies, his aggression, his show of ultimate seeming, ultimate power is what attracts them to him. It's not because he's a shepherd. It's because he is a warrior and he wields his authority. When you think about that image of wielding authority, like me, you probably think about someone swinging 
a sword, or a battle axe. That's usually the way that we think of that word wield when someone wields something or wields authority. It is like someone with a sword or an axe. It is an effort by wielding to take down someone else, to crush them, to defeat them, to murder them. But what is so interesting and so necessary for us to see is that while the devil and his beasts subordinate people by fear and destruction, it is that act itself that makes them and makes this second beast counterfeit subordinators. This is not the true way to bring people into subordination or into a commitment to you, but rather it is a counterfeit subordination. Therefore, as we look here, we have an opportunity to say, so what's the difference? If this is the way the devil works in the world, what can this tell me or remind me about how Jesus works in the world? We're reminded throughout Scripture that Jesus, among many other things, is the true subordinator. But he also does it by wielding his authority. But he doesn't do it by attacking. He doesn't do it by slinging a sword or an axe. He doesn't do it by murdering and intimidating and aggressing. How does he do it? He does it by laying his life down, not by taking the lives of others. Listen again to that text from our public reading of Scripture this morning. Listen carefully for the way Jesus wields his authority. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority. When you hear Jesus Christ say, I have authority, be sure you recognize he wields his authority in an entirely different way than you. An entirely different way than I. An entirely different way than the devil. When Jesus wields his authority, he does so by laying his life down. That's how he uses his authority. Think of the people in your life who have authority over you or around you. How do they wield that authority? How do you wield your authority? I think back upon my parenting in many ways that I have fallen short of this incredible standard of a good shepherd. I have not always been a good shepherd. I often am wielding my authority in ungodly ways with aggression and intimidation to provoke fear and submission to me. But Jesus Christ sets himself apart from everyone because he wields his authority not by taking, but by laying down. It's an incredible reality that is here in this text and in many places for us, and it's the reminder that the only one who is worthy of your hope and mine is he who died for you. Let me say that again. The only one who is worthy of your life's hope is he who died for you. Under the influence of sin and the devil, hopes are hijackers. 
your heart and my heart are hijacked by little H hopes all the time. We see something or we see someone that promises us some relief or help or security. And our hearts are so prone, so desirous, so ruled by the promises of security and help and satisfaction that we will run almost anywhere to get it. We'll take those little hopes, those people and things, and we will expand them into big H hopes. And they take over our hearts and they become the very things that we look to for all of our security, all of our joy. That's what's happened here in a cosmic sense. The whole world has seen the first beast and the second, in particular the second, who has made promises and has declared this kind of security that no one can make war with you if you belong to the beast. No one can touch you if you belong to the beast. And you better belong to the beast because you certainly don't want to get on his bad side. And as a result, their little hope becomes the big hope of their lives, just as it does for us all the time. Therefore, we want to see in this the importance of keeping our big H hope in the true subordinator. You know, the Bible says that every Christian ought to make his calling and election sure. That means that you're examining yourself and making sure that you are in the faith, that you are trusting in Christ, who is a good shepherd. You are like a sheep resting upon him and, 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 and putting your life and hope in his hands. Therefore, what we should be doing as we read about this coming age in the world in which false hopes will reign, counterfeit subordinators will control, we should be making sure right now of our big H and our true subordinator who is Christ. He's the one that we want to look to. He's the one that we must depend upon so that we will not fall for this counterfeit subordination of the devil, who will call people to worship him from all around the world, and he will do it by, number two, deceiving the world. This, as we've seen, is the central tactic of the devil. He is by nature a deceiver. Therefore, his beasts, his counterparts, his figures in the world will also be masters of deception. The second beast, who is what we might call an anti-prophet, just as we refer to the first beast as the kind of antichrist, this anti-prophet deceives by using miracles to garner worship and service to the first beast. Notice what it says in verse 14, he deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who live on the earth, listen to this, to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life again. In this future time, it seems this, this symbolic imagery that's given to us is that this political and religious figure will work together to garner the worship and even the prophet will make a, uh, tell the people to make an image and by some miraculous power bring that image to life. It says that it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause all who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Do you see what's happening in these deceptions? What is the devil doing in this time? He's layering the trap. 
You see that this is not something that the Lord himself must do. He doesn't need to keep layering and to keep moving you into his plan by deceptions. He just presents himself. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, they come to him alone simply because he is the glorious savior of their souls, the shepherd of their souls. But that's not what happens with the devil. The devil's trap is a layered trap. It's a lot like quicksand. You know what quicksand is? It's, it's sand that has become waterlogged so that the sand or clay looks firm on the top, but as soon as you step down into it, the water flees away and it begins to pull you down layer by layer by layer. The deception of the devil is the deception of a con artist who moves you quickly from one offer to the next, deeper and deeper and deeper. It's never enough to just deceive once. That's why when you see his plan in the world, he deceives and deceives and deceives. There's deceptive figure after deceptive figure after deceptive figure pulling the world deeper and deeper and deeper into his clutches. That's why there's two main differences between this anti-prophet and the true prophet who is Christ. Christ himself does not use deception to garner worship. What does he use? He uses truth. He uses ultimate truth, the ultimate truth of his own character and nature, of his own gospel and good news, of his ultimate plans in the world to glorify himself, for which there's nothing better, and to make the hearts of his people glad in him, for which there is nothing more important. He offers one ultimate satisfying object. He offers in the gospel one thing, and that thing is himself. He is enough. You cannot look at the wiles of the devil and come away thinking that he ever would be enough because he keeps having to present new objects of worship, new influences, new deceptions over and over again. There's the dragon standing on the shore raising up the first beast from the ocean. Then there's another beast that's coming from the land. Then that second beast tells the people to create an image. Then the image comes alive. Then they worship the image. Then the image is actually talking to them in some miraculous, mysterious way and it's telling all of the people to kill all of those who do not worship the beast. But Jesus offers the better way, doesn't he? He offers the way of truth and that truth is saving truth. Listen to what it says in John 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and what? You've heard this lots of times. The truth will set you free. First, remember this. Jesus always works among his people in truth, not deception. It's his truth that makes you free. It is ultimately knowing him and his sovereign loving care as the good shepherd of your soul that sets you free. But it raises this important question. You know, I would think that this verse right here, the one that we've read about the truth setting you free, it could be one of the most misused verses in all of human history. How many times have you read that on a greeting card or you've seen that on a commercial or on some kind of political ad? How many times has that been co-opted and misinterpreted in order to further someone else's agenda? 
But what does it really mean to be free? How does the truth set you free? This is prime time in our country for Christians like you and me to be talking about real freedom. Because perhaps a few other times in our history have people been so concerned to have it. That's what we hear every turn of the channel on every radio station and every magazine and newspaper. Our number one plea is freedom. But what is it? See, the problem is we don't even know. But the Bible tells us what real freedom is. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. That put together with the context of what he says in John 8 gives us the answer. What is real freedom? It is to belong to Jesus Christ. That's where real freedom is found because to belong to Jesus Christ means that your heart is satisfied with him. This is the the ultimate objective of the Christian life is to be satisfied with Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, think about your life. Think about your heart. Are you satisfied with Jesus Christ today? Will you be satisfied with Jesus Christ tomorrow? Are you truly free? What I think is so beautiful about the freedom that Jesus Christ gives is that it's not dependent on anything outside of us in the world. It doesn't matter who rules the world. It doesn't matter who leads the country. It doesn't matter the policies that are in place. Ultimately, not in an ultimate sense, of course, they have meaning and importance, but ultimately, true freedom has nothing to do with those things. In fact, it is possible, in fact, it is guaranteed that even if the devil himself for three and a half years were to take control of the whole world and all of the world were to turn against Christ and you, that he would still be enough. That he would be the satisfier of your soul. He would be the one who would well up joy and gladness in your heart. That is the gospel. That is the reason that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again for us. Real freedom. So what should we do? We should feed ourselves. You should feed yourself on this truth. Now that is going to sound very simple. That is going to sound like something to take for granted. But we need to be careful we don't. Because if we were to take an inventory of our lives, your life and mine, and look back upon recent weeks and really take an account of how much feeding on the truth we're doing, we might find it's actually very little. We think that it's a natural kind of thing that Christians feed on the truth, that we rest in the gospel, that we find our gladness in Christ. But that's not true, is it? In fact, it's one of the hardest things for us to do. The remaining sin in our hearts continues to pull us away from Christ, away from the truth. We have all kinds of voices inside of us and outside of us telling contrary ideas and principles and ways to live and think. What we need is to intentionally feed upon the truth until our hearts are satisfied in God. This is the best way to prepare for whatever may come in the future. 
course, the book of Revelation is difficult to understand. It's hard to parse out what may come. And of course, we are false prophets. We don't know what will happen in the future. But do you want to be prepared? If you want to be prepared, feed on truth today. Feed on the gospel today. Keep preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to yourself until your heart sings with joy. And then preach it again. Because we know that there will come a time in the future, whatever it may be like, when things will go from bad to worse. And we see finally, number three, that the devil, in addition to subordinating people to worship him him, and deceiving the world into that worship, the devil will for a time decree in the world, control the world, and he will decree the suffering of Christians. The devil will control He will, in a sense, cause all demographics of the world. Look at verse 16. He causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads, gaining their allegiance. Now keep in mind, this is not something that's happening against their will. They're willing worshipers. They're receiving this mark, whatever it may be, to signify their willing allegiance to him as their king. And this will happen all around the world, this mark. We don't know exactly what this mark is. Remember that much of what's in the book of Revelation is symbolic. So it would be naive of us to simply expect to be a literal mark on foreheads and a literal mark on right hands. That's something, the mistake that we've been making for ages and ages down through history. People who are familiar with the book of Revelation have been looking out for the mark and wanting to know what it is. You know, when social security cards became a thing, some feared that that was the mark. You would get this card or the credit cards or that somehow this mark would come into your life and onto you through your computer or more recently through things like vaccines and you would take a mark upon yourself. I don't think that's what the book of Revelation is talking about. I don't think it's warning us about a literal mark. I think it's warning us about a spiritual mark about an allegiance of heart. Notice what it says here about this mark. The mark will be given on their right hands and on their foreheads. Other theologians, and I think this is true, see this as referring symbolically to the way that you think, to the philosophy of life that you take on. And even down to your hand, the place of of your trade and work in the world that all of you would become encapsulated, all of a person would become encapsulated or captivated to the work of the devil in this time. We also read about this other kind of confusing thing in verse 18, saying, here is wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Boy, that has tripped up many Christians for ages and ages, uh, getting caught in numerology and trying to sort out what does that mean It says, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Rather than seeing some kind of hidden name or meaning inside those numbers, if you could add them or subtract them or multiply them, you could somehow identify who is, uh, what is this mark? Who is this beast? I think instead there may be some upfront meaning to these three sixes in a row. Of course, we know from Scripture that seven is often a number that is used to reference completion or perfection. You think about uh, the work of creation. 
You think about when Jesus talked to Peter about how he should forgive seven times 70. You see this number seven over and over again, and routinely then six is to fall short. I think that's a a more likely interpretation, a more truthful interpretation of what is John saying about this beast, that he is 666, falling short upon falling short upon falling short. I think that it actually is a reminder to us of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. If you were to put a number on Jesus Christ, you most certainly would put the number on him, 777. That he is supreme upon supreme upon supreme. But the beast and the devil are failure upon failure upon failure. 666. Nevertheless, for a brief time, by his authority and control, he conscripts the worshipers to enforce discipline upon Christians who lack these credentials, this kind of, of, of allegiance, proof of allegiance. You know, it kind of does remind you of what happened at different times in history. For instance, in the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, everyone had credentials that they had to show to show their allegiance There will be a way of recognizing your allegiance to Christ and the world will see it. In fact, this is what they will use in order to create this one world economy, it seems. Notice what one of the consequences of not worshiping the beast will be, verse 17. He decrees that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name, the symbolic number of this name, will not be able to buy or sell sell. We see this kind of thing at work in our world. It's hard not to acknowledge it right now, something that has become known as cancel culture. If you don't have the proper allegiances, then you are unable to access certain parts of society. You will immediately be let go of your job or pushed out of a community. This will happen at an exponential rate around the world, and it will happen to those who do not worship the beast. There will be extreme suffering coming upon the world. But here's what's so interesting. It's interesting that the devil, even in this, seems to forget the place of suffering in God's plan. He seems to forget that at the very center of the gospel is the greatest suffering of all time the suffering of Jesus Christ for his people. And that it was in fact his suffering that brought about forgiveness and bring about, brings about conversion and causes people to be kept in God's covenant love. And therefore it is the persecution of Christ's people that down through the ages and down into the future from here forward actually sanctifies them. What happens when people are persecuted in the world for Christ? What will happen when these things happen? They will draw close to Christ. We will draw close to him. We will long for heaven. In fact, all suffering ultimately sanctifies us because it is useful in God's hands. We see that he not only permits, but he ordains such suffering even for our good, and he will keep us. This is going to sound strange, but I gain an enormous amount of comfort and encouragement about my own life by reading about this future day. 
when I read about this or I think about persecution in the world or see stories now of where it's happening and how it's happening, I probably, like you, I wonder to myself, how am I ever going to endure that? How would I ever remain faithful to Christ in that situation? I'm not that strong. How do I know that I won't just fold and throw my cards in and that'll be that? I don't know that. But what I do know is this. I know this from other situations in my life, and you do too. I know it from other things that have happened in Scripture. The grace shows up on time. And that's our hope. Our hope is that grace will do a work we cannot see today. And here's the comfort of this text for you and me. If we were to face anything like this, grace will show up on time. And how do you know that? Because they were killed. Because they were identified. Because you could see their allegiance. They did not fold. You know they did not fold because they were cut off from buying and selling. You know that they did not fold because they are killed by the beast and by the idol. And this reminds us that God will have his way. He will care for his people. His grace will arrive on time. And therefore, we do not need to fear but we need to prepare. One passage that has been particularly helpful to me in suffering is 1 Peter 1. I'd like to share it with you this morning before we close and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. How often I have faced trials and felt like they were so unnecessary. God, why are you doing this? There must be a different way. There must be a better way. But this reminds me that even my little suffering for a little while in God's hands is necessary. He is using it. He is not wasting it. It's not by chance. He's bringing it about to accomplish his his ends in my life so that the proof of my, your, our faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That will happen. Revelation 13 tells us that that will happen. He goes on and says in verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. These are people who are enduring incredible sufferings these to whom First Peter is written. And it says in verse 9 that they will obtain as the outcome of their faith the salvation of their souls, and we will too. If you wonder how you will endure such trouble, remind yourself it will only be by grace alone. Only be by resting in grace alone today in light of future troubles, in light of future grace. And so therefore, what should we be doing as we read this last bit of Revelation 13? How should we be preparing? We must focus. Focus your forehead. Focus your hands. Focus all of you, what you think, what you believe, the affections of your heart, how you live. Focus it on the glory of Jesus Christ, that he would be your big H all the time, that you would rest in his grace and his care, that you would look forward in Scripture at things to come and rejoice knowing that grace will arrive on time and help you. And remember that it is the goodness of God 
and his hand that works in our sufferings now. The only way that we can have this kind of outlook and mentality is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because he has already gone before us. He has already suffered for us. He has already died for us. And he has already risen again. Therefore, we are with him by faith. And we look forward to coming days, whatever they may hold, because we know who is our good shepherd. This ultimately is the aim of all of life. And it is the aim of our celebrating the Lord's Supper that we would glorify God and that we would be refreshed in our spirits. In fact, I leave you with these words and from Johann Sebastian Bach, who said, The final aim and reason of all music is nothing other than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the Spirit. So it's our prayer this morning that as we take the Lord's Supper, we would hear the music of the gospel and that it would, it would lift up our hearts to glorify the God who has spoken it over us and to us, the one who has converted us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to his word alone, to his glory alone, and that it would make us glad this morning. That is our prayer. I want to pray for us, and then the deacons will come forward to hand out the elements of the Lord's Supper as Pastor Isaac comes to officiate that time. Uh, I want to let you know that if you are a guest with us this morning and a Christian, you are welcome to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're wrestling with your faith or the truth, and you've not yet come to settle your life in the hands of Jesus Christ, then this would be a time for you to observe and pray, and we pray alongside you. We pray that God would give you, as he has given us, everything that we need so that we can believe in him. We pray that for you, and we ask that you would observe and pray that God would work in your heart the way he has ours, so that he might bring you to faith in Christ, and then, and then we can rightly celebrate together the life, death, and resurrection as a family of believers who belong to one another in his covenant love. Let me pray for us and ask our deacons to come forward and ask you to use this as a time to prepare your heart, to think upon the gospel, to examine your life, and to make your calling and election and the subordinator of your soul true. Our Father, we know that you are king. You are the one who reigns and rules over all. You are the one who wields your authority, and yet we recognize you are far different than we. You wield your authority by laying your life down. Jesus, you have laid your life down for us, and you have taken it up again. And so, God, this morning, we pray that as we take the Lord's Supper, that we would be refreshed in our souls, that you would be glorified by all of our thoughts and affections being centered upon you. And we pray that as some days in the future may bring exponential difficulties, that you would prepare our hearts with exponential grace. You would comfort us and strengthen us, sharpen us, Draw us close to you this morning and every day so that we may know you and love you and serve you and rest in you forevermore. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.